0: page 866 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you this morning. When we are through this morning, if you have any questions about Christ, the Bible, or what you heard, um, I would be happy to try to answer those questions when our, when our time together is ended. I'm going to read verse, verses 8, 9, and 10, and also verses 12 and 16. So let's hear the word of the Lord, Jude 8. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Verse 12, these men are blemishes at your love feast. Verse 16, these men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together and let's seek the help that we need from our gracious God. Once we stood as captive slaves, the bonds of sin and death, our chains. But you, O oh God, with blood our freedom bought, it was finished on the cross. Let us at your throne of mercy find now a sweet relief, kneeling in deep contrition, help our unbelief. Now, Father, please bring glory to yourself, help to your people, life to those who are still dead in their sin, and make my words, your words, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, spiritual deception is an ugly word for a dishonest way to live. Jesus warned his disciples in his earthly ministry that false Christ and false teachers and false professions of faith would be part and parcel of their experience. And what was true for them in their day is no less true for us in our own. People are inherently religious. John Bunyan in his classic must-read book, The Pilgrim's Progress, had this wonderful line near the end of his book. It was a line of warning that said this, then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven, as well as the city of destruction. In other words, Satan, the great deceiver, may give a person 99 near truths only to set them up for his one big lie. So Jesus Jesus warns his followers to watch out for deceivers. He, He warns them because he loves them. He warns them by laying down plain instruction about these deceivers. The Apostle Peter spends almost all of 2 Peter, essentially, if you would, profiling the very characteristics of the deceiver. Simon Peter, who was himself deceived, albeit self-deceived, he was deceived in relation to how terrifically remarkable he thought himself to be, So, so remarkable that he could lay down, essentially, slander about the other 11, only for Peter to have a total collapse at the worst possible moment one can imagine in his self-deception. And from the very beginning of time, as many of you know, the master deceiver, Satan, has been again and again deceiving people, sometimes losing and sometimes winning. But the Christian, as Jude brings to light here, the Christian will have to persevere with these deceivers till the end. Well, Well, why? Why does it have to be that way? Well, you know this. Ours is a fallen world. Darkness is everywhere. And people, men and women and young people, John chapter 1, they love darkness. And because they love darkness, spiritual deception abounds. Therefore, in the case of Jude, he writes, you can see there in your Bibles, verses 3 and 4, he writes essentially that there's one faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. This faith is precious and it's worth contending for because it is the only faith that can save. The faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. People either devalue the faith, they deny the faith, they rearrange it or put it on a shelf, And therefore, every genuine believer, verse 3b, must contend for the faith, because the faith is the guiding principle in the church of Jesus Christ. And the follower of Christ, then here in Jude, is given an authoritative picture. This is not personal opinion. This is an authoritative picture of the marks that mark a deceiver. That's, that's the title that we'll be working under, the marks that mark a deceiver. So Jude writes verse 8 in the very same way. Immediately you ask yourself the question, well, what very same way? Well, the previous three lines that, that spoke to the unbelieving Israelites, verse 5, the uh, lawless and perverted angels, verse 6, and the perverted people of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, which if you, essentially, if you, if you would just uh, push them together, said that they believed any way they like, so, so they are unbelievers. Therefore, since they're unbelievers, they behave any way they like. The moral law of God has, has no say to them because grace means to them we can do what we like, no need to repent. Jesus isn't king because we are essentially a self-ruled group. But the gospel that the Christian is contend for says, no, 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 you see, Jesus is king. And the penalty due me was paid by Jesus. And he died for sin, not so that we can sin. He makes men and women holy, not unholy. Grace is not license. Verse four, conversion is not self-rule. So in a couple of weeks ago, and doing some work to get ready for these things, I came across an article uh, in 2007 article. It was a Pew report that they took a group of people and they said, okay, tell me what's on a Big Mac and tell me what's on the Ten Commandments. And of course, as you probably know, the more people could say that a Big Mac has two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, teas, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun, that they can say the the commandment. So they didn't know commandment three, and they didn't know commandment eight. I'm counting on you to know this. Count Commandment two. So then Peter, or like Peter, Jude profiles for his readers these, these characteristics of false professions, these marks that mark a deceiver. So, in my notes and in your worship folder, we're going to work under two headings. The first one will be the longest, uh, an authoritative description, and then a strange example. Okay, first of all, then, an authoritative description. Verse 8, if your Bible is open, in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Now, again, it's important that we remember this is not a guess on Jude's part. When Jude gives his readers these marks that mark a deceiver, this, this is not a guess, It would be one thing for us to have personal opinions on on just what is the mark of a deceiver. That would be one thing, but this is not that. This is Jude speaking for God as he pins down these deceivers. So there's to be no question that that he is correct on this, as he says, beginning with that descriptive phrase, these dreamers. And the word there that Jude uses about these dreamers is the word um, that should be understood in the prophetic sense. In other words, these deceivers have essentially night visions and they hear voices. In other words, they dream these dreams that they think are bigger than the Bible, that go beyond the Bible, that go way beyond the once and for all given gospel, as if God is speaking through them and to them only in their dreams. So the context tells us that not only do they pay no attention to God's moral law, which is eternal, but they substitute a personal or subjective law that, that bends when their desires bend and changes when their ch- uh, desires change because they are the basis of their authority to decide for themselves. And yeah, you know, they sure, surely they might say things like, well, we've been praying for this for a very long, long time. But they will just flat out ignore God's revealed will. And this becomes to them acceptable because they dreamed it in a dream which they say is divine. And so we said it like this, a new theology for a new morality, right? New theology uh, for a new morality coming not from the Bible, but coming from their beds, out of their heads. And you'd have to admit it's it's a clever little trick, isn't it? When you use terms like God is leading me to direction X, When all direction X is a line of living that fits them and their dreams and their ungodly desires, their sensual appetites, which opposes righteousness, is self-ruling, dismantles families, friendships, churches, and the so-called leading from God came in a dream that they dreamed up. If you're taking notes, I have it down like this. Private revelation for personal self-willed application. That's what they're doing. Private revelation for personal, self-willed application. Hence, part of the description they bring to us is that God is a liar. Because what they say in their dreams is not happening in his word. So they paint a false picture of God who who seemingly only speaks to a privileged few. That's how it goes, right? Only a privileged few get these dreams when the gospel is for all who will listen. Listen. So again, this, this week in my readings, I came across a, a Christian leader who, who had some moral issues and this is how he explains how he came to his decision. That's when Jesus came. Jesus made himself known to me. I could see him. He turned to me and he gave me the idea. Now I want to ask you a question. Is that any, any way to build a solid, sound, sound, Christ-exalting life. Is it? Is that any way to shine the light of Christ in a dark world? If the gospel is for all and in Christ means the same thing for every Christian, do these private dreams, are they really the way to go? The Puritans would say, if you want to know who a person really is, ask them about their daydreams. Jude would say, if you want to know the mark of a spiritual deceiver, their theology is a fantasy, which puts them on the throne of absolute power. So, so, a good question to ask these deceivers would be Well, tell me, how do you decide what you do on a Tuesday or a Thursday or, or, or a Sunday? You dream this up? Now, this isn't new. Jeremiah, a long time ago, had to contend with the same thing, Jeremiah 26, in which God says, I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name. In other words, the very character of God, who God is. Let the prophet who has a dream verify the dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw dream have to do with grain? The word declares the Lord. It is not my word like fire? declares their Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Verse eight in the very same way, subpoint number one now, these dreamers pollute their own bodies. Well what does that mean? The ESV translates this they defile the flesh. And what this is, is nothing more than sexual and and uh, sensual immorality. It's not just sexual, but it's the stuff of the skin. And it's a sad and true characterization throughout the whole of the Bible, throughout all of history, that false professions and false prophets to their own hurt and the hurt of other people have loose morals and carnal appetites. When a person falls in those positions, it's usually girls or guys or gold that make them fall. And, and then this darkens the beauty and the wonder of their humanity, of all humanity, not only in their outward bodies, but in their inner person. In essence, the whole person is stained and polluted by their immorality. And I was listening to a young lady singing at a South by Southwest concert in Austin, Texas. And part of her act is that she smeared herself in dirt. She's a beautiful lady, but you couldn't see her beauty because she was all smeared up in dirt. It's part of her performance. I didn't understand it, but that's the way it was. And that would be a picture that Jude gives us as a polluted, soiled, defiled deceiver. Now listen carefully. The context of verse 8 is that these deceivers are unrepentive about this. Okay, so they had a dream. The dream said it was okay, and they remained defiant, disobedient. A new theology to match their new immorality will say And that is not the same thing, listen carefully, that is not the same thing as saying, I struggle with sensual and sexual purity. I know what it is, and I know what it is not. And at times, I fall into sexual sin, and therefore, am I forever polluted? Is it all over for me? Can I ever be clean again? Well, what does the gospel say? Well, the sub says something like the salvation song that Stuart Downing sings. When I'm stained with guilt and sin, he is there to lift me, heal me and forgive me, gives me strength to stand again stronger. A couple of words I added, cleaner, brighter than I was before. That's the gospel. And you see these dreamers of verse eight, these deceivers, which pervert God's grace in Jesus, they could never enjoy that song. They could never give glory to Christ for such a love. Why would they need to? If it's all good all the time, any time, any place with anyone, why would they need to worship? Why would they need to bow down and give thanks to Jesus Christ for such a grace, for such of deliverance? They never would. Listen carefully. Low view of sin. No need for a gospel. Low view or no view of sin. Low view or no need of a gospel. But also, these deceivers would never know cleanness. They would never know purity like the fully forgiven child of God knows. Isn't that what Jesus won for us at the cross? And in the most cleanest and most upright ways, the Father says, your sexual sin, your sensual sins, no no matter how ugly they may be in Christ, they can never, they can never outdo my grace. So, so Jude's authoritative profile, the marks that mark these deceivers, they have subjective dreams, fantasies. They think they always get it right. And the first thing that Jude says is that they pollute their bodies. Secondly, then, you can see it there in verse 8, they reject authority. Now, the word for authority is, is the word karyotes. And there's a root word in there, which most of you know, it's kyrgios, which is translated lore. And so literally this would read, they reject lordship. Now we were already told in verse four at the end there that these deceivers reject the fact that Jesus Christ is is the only sovereign and Lord. But here in verse eight, Jude gives a even more refined description of them. In other words, for these deceivers, it's not just that they will not be ruled by Jesus, but they will not be ruled by any institution or moral framework that Jesus delegated in his lordship to this world. Because, you know, it's one thing to say Jesus is king, you know, in kind of pretend way, right? We understand that, Jesus is king, and then I'll do what I want, and you're still at the rudder of your life. But it's altogether a different thing to say Jesus is king, and then we bow to his delegated authority in the, in the world. So you ask yourself the question, what is the institutions that Jesus has delegated his authority to? And there are three, civil, ecclesiastical, parental, marital, right? Civil, ecclesiastical, parental, or marital. These are institutions that God gave the world. So think about civil authorities. Romans 13, 2, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do bring judgment on themselves. So civil powers ordained by God, we are under them unless they attempt to be over God. So The Christians are law-abiding and not law-bending nor law-breaking citizens. The deceivers, no, no. That's civil. Then there's ecclesiastical in the church. And again, this is very hard for a postmodern person to get. In the church, God has established a line of authority as elders and pastors are responsible for the leadership of others in the church, while all in the church are responsible to the leadership of Jesus Christ through his word. That's why Hebrews 13, 17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Why? Because, because, you know, I put them there to to be a royal pain in your neck and give you crazy things like everyone wanted to do. No, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account of you do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. So there's civil authority. There's ecclesiastical authority. And then in the family, parental and marital authority. Parental, obey your dads and moms, kids. Obey your dads and moms. Marital, God gives us a beautiful picture of, of harmony and bliss. It's, it's just like the Trinity. In the Trinity, no one is devalued. Everyone has a glory and honor and power that are equal. It's the same in a Christian marriage. 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. In other words, a husband and wife's role is not about status. In a Christian marriage, everyone is number one. It's about function. Now think with me just for a minute. Can you imagine living in a home, a society or being part of a church where there's no authoritative voice or self-rule, you know, kind of the biggest beast wins? As if God wasn't clear on these things. But but such is the desire of those Jews writes on. These deceivers, they dream this up. So they demand to rule their own lives and the normal God-given established institutions that keep men and women at bay, the government, church leadership, uh, parental authority, marital uh, unity, those things that Jesus gave us, they rebel against. Therefore, their so-called freedom in Christ is nothing more than a wicked disguise for rebellion. And you see how it works. This is Again, God's told me, he's led me, he's burnt me, whatever, you know, in these dreams to do X. And since he's telling me and not you what to do, then despite all those lines of authority, despite God's revealed will, I'm going to go my own way. And like an animal, they would probably say, you know, try to stop me. 1 Peter 2.17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the church fear god and honor the king yeah 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 that's nice but you know it doesn't apply to me doesn't apply to me i've got bigger dreams than that calvin 16th century calvin writes it's just the same today 16th century that fanatics rage against authority civil which hold them down and they would and they these deceivers would have all established order overthrown okay The marks that mark these deceivers, they're dreamers who pollute their bodies. The flesh is first. They reject the established authority as they they think that they're the final authority in everything and which is a wicked, foolish, arrogant way to live. Is it not? Is it not? Thirdly, they slander celestial beings. Okay, so the ESV, uh, English Standard Version, they slander or revile majesties or angelic majesties. Now, as you think about these things, most of us have probably never heard of anyone speaking unkindly about angels. In fact, it was only, what, a few years ago when angels were the rave. Ladies had the beautiful angel pens and everybody was hoping they'd be touched by an angel. So, how do we understand this? Well, the key word in that little phrase for celestial is the word doxa. And it's a word that's translated angels in the NIV, but in the past, Older commentaries, and actually old and new commentaries, they translate that word also uh, church leaders or teachers. Anyway, we would say the the majesties. And so older and newer newer commentaries say, well, this is, okay, it's angels, but it's also anyone with a majestic role that speaks for God. And that's why Calvin said it could be translated angels and preachers. And in the New Testament, this word doxa is the only time here that it's translated angels at all. So, so I want to suggest to you, because of the context, that I think it's very safe, which I'm going to explain in a moment, to say this means both angels and church leaders and, and preachers. And here's why. Okay? First, verse 9. You see it there if your Bible's open. Verse 9 helps underpin that Jude is speaking of angels because it fits the context. But as you think about the whole context, both angels and pastors have the honor, the doxa, the the majestic glory to give the word of God to others. Because true pastors and true elders are essentially God's messengers. God gives them the word, right? And they declare that word. So they have that honor not to give their personal opinion. That was the deceiver's but they have the honor to declare God's truth. So listen to Jesus. This is John's gospel, chapter 7, verse 19. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. And guess what? It's the same word that Jude uses, doxa. So you get this. Whoever speaks on their own, they're speaking for their personal agenda or they're speaking because of their personal convictions. And then Jesus says, but he who seeks the glory, the doxa of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. So you got, two, you got one who speaks their own mind, liar. And you have one who speaks the mind of God, a truth teller. So think about angels. Angels had the, the honor of giving the, the law of God at Sinai to his people. Galatians 3.19, the law was given or mediated through angels. So the moral law which reveals the character of God, which Hebrews 10 says that in the new covenant, every Christian has in their heart and on their mind, Which again, verse 4, the deceivers say, that law has no hold on me. That law was given through angels. And so it is slandered by these deceivers in their slander of the angels. And the very law that drives us to Christ as it exposes sin, they slander. But, and pay attention here, if there's no law to break, then there's no Savior needed. And so preachers who preach Christ are the next in line to receive the slander from these deceivers. Now are you still with me? You have holy angels giving the moral law of God, which Romans 7:12 says is holy, righteous and good. And you have preachers giving, giving the given gospel to the people. And these deceivers, they slander these messengers. There's no law and the gospel as they give it is not right. They slander these messengers. And they revealed their defiance by constantly slandering the native tongue of the devil, slandering the messengers of truth, namely angels and preachers who proclaim only God's word. Now, I certainly can't speak for angels, but I can, and I can barely speak for pastors. So let me give you two examples, one personal, one historical. A long time ago, in a faraway place, not here, In the early days of my ministry, there was a lady. I'm going to give her the name. This is not her real name. We're going to call her Charismatic Karen. And Charismatic Karen, in the early part of my ministry, would knock on my door. And she would say the same thing over and over again. God will never bless this church because you're not preaching the truth. And you have some kind of sin in you. That's basically what she was saying. And so every few weeks, Charismatic Karen... Come in, charismatic Karen. I'm ready. And she'd give me the business. God will never best this truth. And we were enjoying steady growth and, you know, conversions and baptism. You'll never best this church. And you're not preaching the truth. And you've got secret sin. So after a while, charismatic Karen stopped coming. And so I wondered why. And, 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 And it's a sad thing. Her whole life fell apart. She was a liar. She was a deceiver. She was a law breaker, civil law breaker. She had, had legal issues. Her family had legal issues. So Joseph Parker was a preacher in 19th century England. One day, a very unruly woman, and I'm sorry that these two examples, I just thought that both examples are women. I'm sorry about that. If you want to give me the business later, I'll sit in the corner and take it. But, but anyway, uh, an unruly woman, she, she was sitting in the gallery, so there was like a, a second level to the church, and she threw a piece of paper at Pastor Parker. So Pastor Parker is making his way up to the pulpit and the paper just flies and hits his head. He goes down, he reads it and it has only one word in it and it's the word fool. <laughs> Sorry. So, so Parker looks at the congregation, he opens up the paper and he reads it, fool. And then he says this. I have received many anonymous letters in my life. Previously, they have been a text without a signature. Today, for the first time, I received a signature without a text. (laughs) And there you have it. These dreamers are immoral. They're unruly. They defy authority. They constantly complain, verse 16. They constantly slander. They grumble. They will not shut up. They grumble against any of God's established order in the ways we've mentioned. And... And again, not to be unkind, but if you think through that, all the civil order that God has established, the government, the church, and family, I mean, what is, what is the great complaining coming out of popular evangelical Christianity? Be honest. We can't shut up about the government. We can't sh- shut up about how bad the church is. And we can't shut up about family issues. There's a lesson here that at the very least, on some level, we, we need to consider. Now, we need to move to verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 say they're like unreasoning animals. They're ignorant beasts. They don't know what they're saying. They're denouncing God's order. They're denouncing God's angels, God's preachers. They throw out civil authorities. And so... Then Jude gives us an example, and I called it in my notes, a strange example. Verse nine, do you see it there? But even the archangel Michael, when he's disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And there we have Jude quoting from an event which took place, not recorded in the Bible, new or old, about the life of Moses. But that story is found in a book called The Assumption of Moses. Now, immediately, people, some people have huge problems with this. Why is an, an extra biblical source being quoted in the Bible from Jude? Now, you have to think here, and you can't be alarmed about this, that this happens all the way through the Old and New Testament. The books of the wars of the Lord, Numbers 21, 14, is referred to, quoted from, the annals of the king of Israel, 1 Kings 14, 19, referred to, the apostle gave gave a quote from Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When did Jesus say that? Because it's not recorded in any of the four gospels. Paul even quotes Greek writers, Greek priests, and Greek poets. Acts 17, 28, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Titus 1, 2, which is uh, something like your pastor quoting from the Beatles to make a point. So what Jude is simply doing, he quotes from a book, The the Assumption of Moses, or in some cases, some people say, The Ascension of Moses. He quotes from that book that his readers would have known to make a true point. And here's the point. So don't be bothered by the fact that he's quoting from the book. Here's the point. The story goes like this. The devil wanted the body of Moses. The devil is doing what he does best. He's he's accusing Moses of his sins in the presence of the archangel Michael. The devil's line of thinking goes like this. Moses is a sinner. You know, he killed a man. And you know, he disobeyed God. And he never actually made it into the promised land. Therefore, he should not be allowed into God's holy presence after he dies because Moses is a sinner. So Michael, the angel, Michael, by the way, his name means who is like God. Michael would have been expected to listen to this half-truth from the devil because it's impossible for sin to be in God's heaven, in God's presence. But again, that's half the story, which in this case is one big fat lie. Yes, it's true that sin may never be in the presence of God, but people don't get to heaven by good works, thank God, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ because the righteous live by faith. So here's the point. Instead of the angel Michael giving the devil the business, you know, who do you think you are kind of stuff? He simply minds his place. He stays within his parameters. Verse nine, he, the angel, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation. And that's a courtroom term in the first century. He did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, and this is where we need to pay attention. As bad as the devil is, Even a powerful holy angel did not slander, like the deceivers would, did not slander this celestial being. Because he knows there's only one lawgiver, and there's only one judge, and it's God. So Michael essentially leaves it to God. Verse 9, the Lord rebuke you, because God is the only one who has the right to say these things and to make these kinds of decisions. So here's the application for us as we get ready to zip these things up. The application should be very, very clear. These deceivers, these dreamers who are lawless rebels who think they can accuse and slander all of the created order and all of God's order and all of God's chosen people, they, they think they have a mind of authority that's above everyone else. They are, verse 10, truly like unreasoning animals. Can animals think like humans? No, no. They speak abusively of what they do not understand. Okay, so let's be honest. What do they not understand? Well, ultimately, they do not understand the gospel because if they understood the gospel, they would know two things. Remember John Newton? Number one, that they are great sinners. And two, Jesus. And only Jesus is a great Savior. So there's a point here. And the point actually is a story in the Old Testament that is actually there, Zechariah chapter 3. And the story makes this point even better. Joshua, not Joshua with Moses, but another Joshua, he's a priest. And he's standing before the throne of God. He's a wreck of a priest. He's He's standing before the throne in filthy clothes, a picture of wretchedness. But he belongs to God because he believes God. Satan is to Joshua's right. And he's just spewing out accusations all over Joshua. You know, you just, you're terrible. You can't do it. You're wrong. You're a sinner. you sinner. You're blup, blup, blup. And this is a play on words. Zechariah 3.2 says, The Lord, Yahweh, says, Yahweh rebuke you. There's a Trinitarian thing happening there. This man is a burning stick snatched from the fire. In other words, he's saved. So Hush. And that picture in Zechariah 3 is simply foreshadowing what? It's foreshadowing the gospel. What do these deceivers deny? The gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, here it is in part. When Satan tempts me to despair and reminds me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. I'm spotless in Christ. For God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. Amen? Now we need to think these things through. We need to let verse 10 warn us and God help us to be more careful if we need to be about the conversations that had take place at our breakfast room table or our dining room table, whatever the case may be. Let's bow together as those who will be serving in communion will come forward. Brief prayer before we go to the Lord's table. Our God and Father, you, you are absolutely wonderful. We thank you for your alive written word that keeps us at bay, keeps us in check, it gives us encouragement, direction, all the things that we need, sometimes rebuke. Give us the grace to be aware of deception, self-deception, outward deception. Give us the grace to hold our tongue for Jesus' sake. Amen.